The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing this morning in reverence to the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we're going to be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 7. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. you to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Allow us to see and understand and believe this word that you have so graciously given to us. Help us to find here life and hope and the path to all that pleases you. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Go ahead and stand on your feet, please. Last time, I promise. We return this morning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 10. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. His people should receive it as such. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. May that God would bless the reading of his word. So if I understand correctly where God is leading us, this is the second of two weeks, excuse me, the second of three weeks in which I'm going to give to you some really, really bad news. But you must have the bad news before you will ever be ready to receive the good news. I've told you before that I was what you would call a confrontational evangelist. Not that I was looking for confrontation, but that I would go out as a man on a mission. I was going to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ and how he saves sinners. And I did it like a madman. No one was safe. You were shopping for some bananas at Walmart. You were fixing to hear the gospel. You were minding your own business at the park. You were fixing to hear the gospel. But over time, I came to understand that what I was doing was I was presenting people with a solution to a problem they thought they didn't have. So I found that I spent most of my time, whenever I got beyond just a five-minute vomiting out of some Bible verses, when I got to really considering what the person across from me was saying, how they were responding to what I said, I realized that the person across from me had to get unsaved before I could save them. You must grasp the bad news before you can ever understand the good news. So this is the second, I believe, of three. Those really, really heavy weeks. But as I told you last week, you will never properly rejoice in but God. If you don't first grasp, you were dead. You were dead. The thing that only God can convince you of. It took me 10 years, better part of 10 years, of wrestling with this word before I came to a real understanding of what that meant. You were dead. I jumped through all the usual hoops. All the machinations, all the twisting, all the convincing you're not really dead, dead. It doesn't, doesn't mean that I was incapable. It just means I was cut off. It just meant I was drowning and waiting for someone to throw me the lifeline. That's why men reject such a thing. It takes the enlightening of the eyes of their heart. It's a thing that only God can reveal. You were dead. 
and the full scope of what this deadness means. To be cut off from God completely in the life that only God can impart. To have the whole of your body touched and tainted by corruption and decay and depravity. Your mind and your will and your emotions and yes, your body. Every part of who you are stained by sin. Now let me be clear, you were not utterly Depraved, you weren't as wicked as you could be. Adolf Hitler could have been worse. The most grotesque of sinners you've ever met. He's got some standards. Go join any local gang. They've got some rules. By the common grace of God, his hand upon reprobate sinners, this world stays livable. He's staying the hands of rulers and kings and leaders and the worst sinners you've ever met, restraining sin, and even then, man is not utterly depraved, but he is totally depraved. Not one ounce of who he is apart from Christ, touched by sin, unable to do anything but sin. That which is not of faith is sin, and the lost man has no faith in Christ Jesus. That which does not aim for the glory of God more than all else is sin. And the man apart from Christ gives no thought to the glory of God. But worse than this, you're unable to want anything different. Because you hate God. You're at enmity with God. Oh, maybe not outwardly. You may not curse his name. You may not denounce him. You may sit in a place like this. But the man apart from Christ, he lives his life and he thinks his thoughts and he exercises his will in opposition to God. And the scariest part, as I shared with you last week, is that you were born this way in Adam. Before you knew your right hand from your left, before you made the first decision, before you saw the law of God and rebelled against us, rebelled against it, excuse me. Scripture says that you were born guilty because of the sins of another man, a man called Adam, your federal head, your appointed representative, the perfect man in the perfect place with the perfect God and the perfect wife. Your wife is not your problem. Your setting is not your problem. Your problem is that you are in Adam, this one who sided with the devil and rebelled against God. Therefore, you're not just born broken. You're not just born with a propensity towards sin. You're born guilty before God and worthy of his wrath by nature. Children of wrath. This is why Jesus said, have I not told you that unless the Father grants it, you cannot come to me? Born in sin and loving it. Born separated from God and hating him. Dead to God and alive to sin. You must grasp this. You must grasp that your standing before God is by nature and not by works. Those works flow out of the nature. Because then we're going to be tempted to always grade on a curve. We're going to look to a man like Adolf Hitler just as an extreme example. And you're going to think that your children are nothing like that. The little church boy and girl, surely they must be easier to save. 
They're not evil. They're not wicked. They're not sons of disobedience. Well, if you believe what the word of God says, they are. That it takes the same power of God to save that little boy that sat in church every single day of his life in the nine months before he came out of his mother's womb. He always heard and knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could always sing, Jesus loves me. That that little boy, it takes the same power of God by which he rose, raised his son from the dead. It takes the same power of God by which he might bring a serial murderer to himself to bring that child to Christ. Unless you grasp this, you will always fall short in your worship in your adoration and your thanksgiving to God. You won't understand, Christian, that you're a miracle. And beyond this, you'll always be treating the symptoms. You'll always be trying to figure out what thing out there can we fix to bring this child to Christ, to bring this person to Christ. Until we reckon with the realization that you were dead, that the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't the devil. The problem isn't the world. The problem is you. Yes, Christ Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And yes, when he comes a second time, he will make this earth into something glorious and new. But ultimately, he came to redeem you, the whole of you, your body, your mind, your will, your emotions. That he took all of this to the cross that you might be a new creation. That's the story of Ephesians 2. So it begins like this. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see, it's, it's one thing to recognize where we are positionally. Where were we born into this world? That, in truthfulness, it just feels like doctrine. It feels like the kind of thing you learn in a school. Where am I? Where do I stand? What is my position? But practically, what does this look like? How do I know a dead man when I see him? How can I look back on my own life and recognize what did it look like to be dead? He tells us here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And this word walked in Greek, it can mean literally to put one foot in front of the other. It can mean just to walk, your gait, your stride. But oftentimes it means the way in which we live, the pattern of our life. We're going to see this whenever Paul makes the transition. As you know, Ephesians breaks up into two very equal parts. The first three chapters is a celebration of all that we are in Christ, all that he has done, statements of what is. Then the next three chapters tell us, how do we live this thing out? And right there at the beginning of verse four, we see, excuse me, chapter four, we see this break as he shifts his focus. He says, therefore, because of all that you have learned, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He goes on to say that this walk is one in love. That we're to walk as children of the light. That we're to walk in wisdom. We recognize that to walk, it's, it's, a, it's a statement of the pattern of life. So we could translate this then to say that you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Just as I told you last week. Dead to God, alive to sin. Walking and living and breathing and making decisions. What Paul is saying here is that for the dead man, there is a pattern, there is a stride, there is a way of life, there is a frequency, there is a cadence with which we live and walk because of our nature. It's tied to our nature. Consider Ephesians 2 when he talks about 
uh, verse 10, at the end of this section we just read, when he talks about what does it look like for us to now be made alive in Christ? We're passive. God has made us alive. Dead men brought to life. And he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We do the walking. He did the creating. He did the preparing. The walking reveals our nature. The walking doesn't create the nature. We don't walk that we might be alive. We walk in a certain way because we have been made alive. The walk reveals our nature. It reveals who we are. Paul in his letter to the Romans, Romans 6, 4, says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. That this new life leads to a walking. It leads to a a pattern. It leads to a cadence. It leads to a frequency that we didn't before have. But again, the life causes the walking. Where we stand causes the gait and the stride. That's why Paul is going to go on to say in Ephesians 4, 17, that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says that their minds are futile, that they're darkened in their understanding, that they're alienated from the life of God, that there's an ignorance that's in them because of the hardness of their heart. He says that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed to practice every kind of impurity. Your walk is an impure walk. And it's not because of this impure walk that you're dead. It's because you're dead that you walk in impurity. You must get this. But you learn a great deal about a man by the way that he walks. Zombie movies are all the rage right now. Not so much. They were for a while. Now maybe they're, they're peeing around a bit. But you, you watch any of these shows, these zombie shows, you'd immediately know, typically before the hero does, somehow, when his girlfriend comes walking at him, dragging her foot with a glazed over glance in her eye, she's dead. You know what dead men look like when they walk. It reveals something about their state. When I was in college, there was a lady in Austin, and we called her the voodoo lady. I don't know what she actually did, but word on the street was she could heal a, uh, a pulled hamstring just in a matter of weeks, which is a big deal if you thought yourself an athlete, wanted to get back on the field, you could go to this lady. I think it was mostly chiropractic work and deep tissue massage. But one of the things that she would do is once you went to see this lady, she had an oval dirt track in front of her property, and she would make you run around this track, not necessarily full speed, but she wanted to watch your gait. She wanted to watch your stride. She wanted to watch the way you moved so she could figure out what was going on within you. You walk in a certain way, and the way that you walk reveals where you are. Are you dead? Or are you alive? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That word following, it's kata. It can also mean according to, if you have a Greek New Testament, you look at the top of the Gospels, it'll say like kata markon, according to Mark. This is, this is the story of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to, in accordance with what is said by Mark. He's saying here that you are dead to God and alive to sin, walking according to your own nature, which is in accordance with this world, following the course of this world. That the unregenerate man, it's a man who is in his sin and in the flesh and in Adam, he isn't just wandering aimlessly, that there's a path, that there's a course. 
that there's a track on which he is walking in this gate that is his because of his deadness. And this word course, it's aeon. It can also be translated as age. Now this is the way that God speaks about time throughout the New Testament, that there is an age and then there is an age to come. The age to come is the, the age in which all the sin and all the depravity and all the impurity and everything that is not of God will be wiped away in a new heavens and a new earth when the fullness of eternal life comes upon man. But there's an age right now. And so we're reminded that this age is a, it's a timetable that's been set by God that he has determined when Christ Jesus will return. That in a very real sense, we're already in the age to come because Christ Jesus has come and set us free because the kingdom of God is now because Christ Jesus reigns now. And yet the age that is continues. But that this isn't just a chronological thing, that there's a spirit. There's a tone to this age. That's why we find in Romans 12 too that we're warned not to be conformed to the image of this world. The world, it's the same word, aeon, it's age. Don't be conformed to this age. Don't be conformed to this world. Galatians 1.4 says that God has delivered us from this present evil age. That this is an age of impurity. This is an age of evil. This is an age of wickedness. This is an age that we don't want to be conformed to because this age is not neutral. It's not benign. It's in opposition to God. Ephesians 5.16 says that we must make the best use of the time because the days are evil. What days? The days of this age. The days of this time. The days of this world, they are evil. So he's saying that you once walked with that stride, with that gait, with that cadence, from your deadness, you weren't wandering. You were following a path. You were following a pattern. You were following a course. You were following an age of this world. So we're reminded this isn't just an age that used to be. It isn't just an age that's out there somewhere. It's an age that's here and now. It's this world. Now, world doesn't just mean the things that God has created, this sky and the sea and the earth below. It doesn't just mean the whole of humanity, as in both Jews and Gentiles. When used in this way, it means the powers that are organized in opposition to God. That's why I read in 1 John 2.15 that we should not love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but from the world. Jesus would also say in John's gospel that if the world hates you, you must know that they first hated me. Again, I tell you that the world is not neutral. This age is not benign. It's in opposition to God. More than this, it hates God. And so that's the story here. That there's a pattern, that there's a frequency, there's a cadence to this world, and it matches your cadence. It matches your stride because it's an opposition. It's an enmity with God. And you must feel the weight of this. This isn't saying that this is the way that God has created all that is. What did he say? That it was good. Very good. Perfect. It was meant to all cry out in glory to the glory of God. That man was to subdue it. And yet we find that man fell. And because of this, what did I tell you last week from Romans 8, 7? That the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. An enmity with God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So again, you've got the world heading one direction in opposition to God. An enmity with God along a course headed away from God. And which course do you think you have lined up with in your deadness? 
that very same course. Because you yourselves were once dead at enmity with God. Walking along. We were born with a tune in our heart. Do you wake up and sing songs? Do you wake up with certain songs on your heart? I do. And almost, I mean, I don't even know, maybe 85% of the time, if I'm being honest, is doxology. But there's a tune in my heart when I wake up every morning. Well, you were born into this world with a tune in your heart. And that tune was one of hatred towards God. And you were born into a world with a band full of people playing that same tune. So you got right in line and you marched along with them. Those are my kind of people. And in my kind of way. I think I'm going to walk in lockstep with them. And the reality is it's also predictable. This is the explanation for why things are the way that they are. This wasn't evolution. Like we didn't, we didn't just eventually land at this place. It all began right there in the very beginning. I think probably on day eight. We didn't all get together and take a vote. And yet again, I say it's all so predictable. We live in a world that's all enslaved and hard-hearted and futile in their thinking. And they're all going one direction by nature. You know, we've started a, uh, we, we, we've launched, we haven't launched, we're moving towards the launch of our private school. And one of the things we don't want for our private schools, we don't just want to become a place where people take their kids, you got people with a little bit of money, and so they take their kids out of the public school thinking the public school is the problem and put them in the private school. If that's your hope, we're not the school for you. We want to deal with parents that know that the problem is the heart of their children and want somebody to come alongside them and deal with their children's hearts. Because you've all seen it. You take a bad kid out of one school, you, you move towns, right? Your kid keeps getting in trouble. Keep, the bad kids keep finding them. You take them, you move towns, you move to another school, and like magnets, they're drawn to the bad kids again. Because there's a tune, there's a cadence, there's a frequency that they just find as did all of we, because we were born dead in our sins, following the course of this world. It's almost like a lazy river. You wonder how do dead men continue on a path? It's like a lazy river. You don't have to work, you don't have to swim, you don't have to fight. You just have to keep doing what you're doing. And the water's nice and warm, and everybody else is headed this way, and it feels completely natural. And you think you're free. You think you're the best swimmer that ever did swim. That's why whenever Jesus speaks about making men free, what do the Jewish people say to him? Free. We've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus had to tell them. He who sins is a slave to sin. But the lost sinner, he doesn't think that he's enslaved to sin. He does not think that he's dead. He does not think that he's following a pattern or a path or a course. He thinks he's original. You ever notice this? Everybody thinks they're so original and so interesting. It's so everybody has their own Instagram feed. And they think everybody's just sitting around with bated breath, wondering what's new in this person's life. But you're just following the script. You're just in lockstep with the rest of the world. Again, I say it's all so predictable. How did we all end up in the same place, right? Like, I love this. The people that count themselves as rebels were raging against the machine because 
We think that boys can become girls. Look at us. You're in lockstep with the President of the United States. What machine are you raging against? And by the way, do you think we're the first generation to ever think that cross-dressing is cool? Go read Leviticus. Go read the Holiness Code, Leviticus 17 through 26. Go read Deuteronomy 22. These aren't new problems. There's nothing new under the sun. When Scripture says we're inventors of evil, that just means we find new technologies to deliver our evil. But the people that think that they are so countercultural, and yet what are they doing? They're going right along with all the institutions and all the colleges and all the governments. How do you think they all end up in the same place? Because they're following a course. They're following a pattern. Right along in the same tune with the rest of the world. Our freedom was slavery. What we counted as freedom. What we counted as life was death. What we counted as freedom was slavery. But we had no clue because we never lived anywhere else. These are the waters we had been swimming in. This is the air that we had been breathing. This is all we ever knew. This is the only tune we had ever heard. And the reality is when somebody else came in and they played a different tune or they sung a different song or they spoke something different to us, we found that to be death. We thought that was slavery and that was a stumbling block and that was a thing to be avoided and to be hated and to be quieted down. That's the reality that we live in a world and you ever heard the phrase hive mind? Have you ever watched and wonder as birds move almost like one giant animal chasing birds to get uh, bugs to get it's incredible these birds they just move almost as if they're they're just have one mind that's the way the world is they all move together in one mind and all it takes is for one person to get out of line and they're going to let you know real quick there'll be a great revolt against you that's why jesus warns them if you're of this world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of this world because I chose you out of this world. The world hates you. Beloved, if the world loves you, you're doing it wrong. If they find you to be reasonable, you're doing it wrong. If they find you to be relevant and relatable, you're doing it wrong. We're not trying to be jerks. We're not going against the tide just to go against the tide. But the reality is, if you're not going to live like dead men, if you're going to walk in a different stride, in a different cadence, it's going to make everyone around you really, really uncomfortable. You've seen these social experiments where somebody gets into an elevator and turns around and stands backwards. People don't like that. Beloved, I don't know when the day comes. I don't know when the day comes, but the day will come when the hive mind turns on us. If we're going to stick to the truth, if we're going to speak the truth of God's word, and if we're going to demand that the people who actually belong to this faith family hold to this truth as the inerrant and authoritative word of God, we will find ourselves at odds with the world. They will hate us, and they will do everything within their power to quiet us. But I say to you what I've said over and over and over again, they can't get us if we don't let them. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say they can't get us, I don't mean they can't kill you. They might. I don't mean CPS won't show up at your house and take your kids. They might. I don't mean you won't lose your job. They might. I don't mean they won't take this building. They might. 
I mean that if we stick together as a faith family, dependent upon this word and nothing else, saying God sets the pattern, God sets the cadence, God sets the stride of us as the body of Christ, they can't get us. We stepped off the course. Not because we're the smartest, not because we're the strongest, not because we're the best, but because God made us alive. He changed us into a new creation. But the pattern of this world, it isn't, it isn't, again, they didn't take a vote, right? Everybody didn't just get together and say, what do we do here? What do we do here? How do we head this direction? And if you ever wondered, you look at the course that the world's headed on, and look, take God out of the equation for a moment. Let's pretend there is no God. There is no judgment at the end of this life. There is no standard set from outside of this world as to what is righteous and holy and just. Pretend all of that is true. We can still step back and look and go, they're headed off a cliff. This will not end well, even if there were not God. Why do they keep charging that way? Well, Paul tells us, because there's a force. There's a power. There's a ruler. There's one above and behind it all that seeks the destruction of man made in the image of God. We didn't get here by accident. Again, I tell you, this world wasn't created bad. There's a power that's been at work. And again, this is so very unpopular these days. It's hard to find a church that speaks rightly about the power, the spiritual powers of darkness. You've got those creepy churches that go all in. That's all they ever want to talk about. Amanda, I've told you before, Amanda, I think she's a, a stalker. I don't think she actually posts. I hope she doesn't post on these pastor wife blogs. And every single church has a spirit of, what is it? Jezebel? Yeah, it's a spirit of Jezebel. They're out to get my husband. No, they're not. There's not a devil waiting around every corner. What does C.S. Lewis say, right? That there are two the greatest tricks that the devil has ever played is to convince you that he is not there or to cause you to just fantasize and to focus on him at all times. Everything isn't about the devil. There's a course, there's a pattern, there's a way. The devil didn't have to touch you. You ran headlong into that. But the other problem is to pretend as though the devil were not real and he were not powerful and he were not active and he was not charting the course of this same world. That's what he says. You once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, these are some familiar words to us here. Prince is the word archon. It's, it's ruler. You remember that from Ephesians 1.21, where we talked about all those whom Christ is over. Every ruler. But he's speaking here about a ruler. About a prince. And then power is exousia. That's authority. The same word that we saw in Ephesians 1.21. So what we have here is that there's a prince, there's a ruler, and that he has a power and he has an authority over the air. Now, some people believe that air speaks to the, that which is not physical and earthly. It speaks to spiritual things, specifically with regards to those things that are evil amongst the spiritual realm. And it certainly fits. He says that he is the prince of the power of the air, we're reminded that when we get to chapter 6, we're told we must suit up in the armor of God that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. 
Perhaps that's what he's talking about here. That that's not material, that's not earthly, that's not easily seen, but the immaterial, the spiritual, the other things. John Piper thinks that perhaps what he's talking about here when he talks about the air is just the inescapability. You're always in the air. You're always surrounded by air. So maybe what he's talking about here is not just this spiritual force, not just the spiritual forces of darkness, but the fact that we're always surrounded by them. And this is true. One of the most terrifying thoughts that you will eventually come to if you take God's word at its truth is that there are spiritual forces of darkness. There are demons surrounding us all the time. We don't know how many angels there are surrounding us likewise all the time, but there is spiritual warfare going on that we're right in the midst of it. That if the eyes of our, if our eyes could be enlightened, is it Elijah's servant that he prays and is, is Elijah or Elisha? Elisha, thank you. That his servant's eyes are open and then boom, all of a sudden he sees what's happening. He goes, snap. We would be encouraged, by the way. But you would recognize that we're not just out here whistling Dixie. That when the Bible says that the devil himself roams about like a roaring lion, the devil can only be in one place at one time. He is but one fallen angel. But that his minions, his demons... These other devils, they're surrounding and swarming and working actively all around us. But whatever the case, whether we're just talking about those spiritual forces in the heavenly places or they're talking about their pervasive nature, the fact that they're all around us, either way, he's saying that they have a ruler. That if there's a ruler that has power and that has authority over this current age, over this world. Now, I've already tipped my hand. Clearly, I believe that he's speaking about the devil here. Scripture talks about him in some strange ways. The first time you ever read that he is called the God of this age, that might be off-putting to you. And when Jesus himself says that he's the ruler of this world, we go, wait a minute, didn't we just read that Jesus is higher than all other authority and rule and power and dominion, both in this age and in the age to come? Yes. But at the same time, John says that we know we are from God, but that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How did this happen? We'll go back to the garden. I submit to you that if you cannot understand the first three chapters of Genesis, you will misunderstand the rest of the Bible. If you find yourself wrestling with Scripture, and, and, and I mean on, on, on big matters, I'm not talking about some, uh, some intricate detail that maybe you've, you've, you're trying to sort out for yourself, but if you find that there's patterns in Scripture that just don't make sense to you and you, and you can't really reconcile them or things in this world, that don't make sense. You may do good to go back to the first three chapters of Genesis and ask, have I really taken this at its word and do I believe it? Because so much of what we see is played out right there before our eyes. And what did we see there? The man who had been given everything, the man who had been given a charge by God to exercise his dominion and his rule and his authority over all the world, what did he do? He rebelled and he sided with the enemy. He entrusted himself to the enemy. He signed off on the plans of the enemy. And with him came not just the fall of man, but the fall of all the world. That everything that God had charged the man and the woman to do all of a sudden became way more difficult. Labor became, became difficult. Childbirth became painful. Thorns and thistles and everything else grew up. And the man was headed back towards the dust over which he was meant to have authority. That everything was thrown into chaos at that moment right there. That that's the answer for how the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
So we're reminded that this whole thing, it isn't just random chaos. The pattern, the course of this world, it didn't just happen that we all came out playing this same tune. It didn't just happen that we all happen to be going this direction. That there's a prince, there's a ruler, there's a power behind it all, and he's the one with the right to chart the course. A right given to him by God. Satan has not one more ounce of power or authority than that which God has given him. Than that which God has allowed. He's the one that's charging this course. And we see those particular moments in scripture where Jesus just comes out and says it. Do you remember when Judas led the people, the, um, the religious leaders, to come and arrest Jesus in the garden? He said, I was with you all day long. I was in your temple courts. You didn't arrest me then. You come out now. Very well come and do what you've come to do. For this is your hour and the power of darkness. He could have called down legions of angels to stop this thing from happening. He was the son of God. Do you remember when he says, I am, and everybody fell on their butts? You think he couldn't have resisted this? He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness because I have decreed before the foundation of the world that this hour and this power would come. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real power. But we should take encouragement. We read the book of Job re realizing that if I can steal a line, I think it was Martin Luther that said the devil is God's devil. He reports to God. That Jesus Christ is in fact far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but the age to come. That Jesus Christ did in fact come to destroy the works of the devil. That Jesus at the beginning of his ministry he amazed people. They said what kind of a man is this that he speaks and the demons listen? That he went to the cross for this very purpose that he says that now is the judgment of the world. Now is the ruler of this world to be cast out. Again, I say Satan does not have one more ounce of power than that which God has determined to give him. But he has it. And he exercises it to the best of his ability. He is more powerful and more cunning and more smart and knows God's word better than you could ever imagine. And he continues to exercise it against us, even those who have been set free, seeking to destroy us, roaming and roaring tempting and taunting and trying to strike fear of death into us. That's why we're called to fight in this battle, causing sickness and death. Look, I'm not telling you that every time a man dies, it's because Satan has struck him dead. But sometimes, if I believe what Scripture says, but that the world, those who are not yet in Christ, those who are just born in Adam, they follow along this course. They follow along this path. They march to the beat of this drummer. And the, the choir master or the drum major or the one setting the tone, he is none other than the prince of the power of the air. And nowhere is this seen more clearly, Paul says, than in the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. That he has sons. Do you remember what we get there in the promise? The proto-evangelion, the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15? When he curses the serpent, but he talks about the fact that he's going to put enmity between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. Now, we know that the offspring ultimately was one in Christ Jesus, the one who would crush the head of the serpent while his heel was bruised. And yet there are other offspring of the serpent. And it's not just the demons I don't think he's talking about here. I think he's talking about Cain and others, that he has sons. That he has offspring. And it says that there's a spirit that is at work within them. And I don't think this spirit is just 
a reference to Satan, although Satan is, in fact, at work. But I think this is more the spirit of the age. You'll hear in 1 John, he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. You might say there's a spirit of love in the air. It's a tone. It's a, it's a power. It's a force. That the spirit of this one, this prince of the power of the air, that his spirit is at work in them, those who are born of disobedience. Sons look like their fathers. Sons act like their fathers. And again, I remind you, these men that counted themselves free because they were sons of Abraham. What did Jesus say to them? John 8. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. John 8, 44. But you are of your father, the devil. You don't speak to people this way, do you? These people weren't particularly of their father, the devil, because they were the Pharisees. Don't misunderstand here. Like the rest of mankind, by nature, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, children of the devil. There are only two families in this world. Nobody gets to play Switzerland in this deal. You're either spiritual children in Christ Jesus adopted into the family of God, or you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. But they live in agreement. They live co-signing the plans of the evil one. But there's a spirit, there's a, there's a mindset, there's a principle of the evil one. And it's seen most clearly in the working. This is another word you're familiar with, right? We talked about this, this working of God's power. That God isn't just theoretically all-powerful. He doesn't just have the ability to do anything that he wants. That he actually does whatever he wants. And he exercises that through his working, through his power. His power at work. That's what he's saying here. And we see it very specifically in certain instances. Like the life of Cain or the life of, life of Judas, right? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because he was greedy. Was that it? No, he was also of the devil. Was that it? No, God had already preordained this thing would happen. You see that God has entrusted authority, has given authority and power to the evil one. The evil one has used that power in the lives of men who are born sons of disobedience. Satan doesn't take charge of some poor innocent soul because there are no poor innocent souls. He takes charge of those who are born dead to God and alive to sin. Those who are marching to the beat of this world. Those who can be rightly called sons of disobedience. And it says that he's working, not just around them, but in them. That the spirit is at work within them, compelling them inwardly. You've seen this. You look to people. You plead with people. You beg with people. You are headed towards death. You're living in disobedience to God. There is wrath to come. And there's something within them that won't let them stop. They're enslaved, they're ensnared by the devil, is what scripture says. By their very nature, they're sons of disobedience from birth. 2 Timothy 2.26, again, is, Paul is talking about what it means to be a faithful pastor, to treat people with respect and love and patience. And he says that perhaps God will use that to grant these people repentance. That God's got to grant repentance. But then when he does grant repentance, what happens? It isn't just a change of heart, although it's that. It isn't just a change of direction, although it's that. It isn't just a flip side of faith by which we lay hold of the promises of Christ Jesus, although it's that. It's a breaking free from the ensnarement of the devil who has captured you to do his will. How does he do this? Well, in part in the text that David read, he has blinded the eyes of non-believers. 
It's a non-believer isn't living in a vacuum. He isn't just laying around being dead. He's following a certain path in opposition to God. He's not just floating around with the, floating along the path that leaves, leads to enmity with God. He is actively working, being led like a blind man because God has, the God of this age has blinded him to the glory of God in Christ. And that's why these men, at the whole of their life, the reprobate, the whole of their life, they shout out as one giant amen to the plans and the purposes of Satan. You were born spiritually dead in your sin, cut off from God, dead to the things of God, alive to sin. By nature, children of wrath, viewing God as your enemy. That's what it means to be dead. And in your deadness, you walked a certain way, following the course of this world whose pattern was set by the prince of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And all of these things matched up because you loved it. The reason that the world is so effective in ensnaring you, the reason that the devil is so effective in enslaving you is because they give you exactly what you want. You see, if we're not careful, we just take these verses out of context. We're going to look to people and look, we should have sympathy. You should recognize that the one that's standing across from you. The one you are evangelizing, the one you are praying for, the one you are pleading with, they are slaves. They are to be pitied. They are to be felt sorry for. But they are not innocent. Because all that Satan is giving them, all that the world is giving them, is exactly what they want. That's why he goes on to say, this spirit of the devil is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The passions of our flesh and the desires of our mind. Passions or desires or cravings or lust. We lived in the lust of our flesh. This word flesh, it can't just mean the body. We celebrated over the Advent season that the word has come in the flesh. That certainly can't be a bad thing. All that it means to be human and even the desires of the flesh, those that are natural, given to us by God, they are not bad. The desire for food, the desire for physical intimacy, the desire for rest, the desire for work and meaning and purpose, all of those things, those are gifts from God until Satan came in and tempted the man and we had disordered desires from that moment forward. So much so that when we get to Genesis 6, 12, we read that God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. That all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Total depravity. The wholeness of flesh twisted. And and you see this. In men with gluttony or with twisted desires of some sort settling for the lesser. Trying to capture any good gifts of God outside of the ways of God. And the purposes of glorifying God. In this way all of flesh is corrupt and vile. We'll get to this. When we, when we start talking about the, the, the works of the Spirit, I'm going to draw your attention over at that point to Galatians 5, 19. It says this, that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, so, idolatry sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh will only ever be flesh. That you can't trust your desires in the flesh. Because it is all at odds, at enmity with God. 
So he's saying that you're living this life. You're walking this pattern. You're playing to the beat of this drummer because it's what your flesh wants. And what your flesh wants is twisted. What your flesh wants is grotesque passions. But we're not just animals. That's what the world wants to convince us, right? That we're all just animals. We're maybe the highest of the animals or the most developed of the animals. And that we're just going to have to act. We have no choice but to act in accordance with our flesh. In, in accordance with what our, what our body design, desires. But he doesn't say this. He says it's the desires of the mind, not just the body. You've thought this thing through. That's why we're held accountable. People wrestle with it. What, to what degree is man actually free? What kind of freedom does man have is, if he's enslaved to sin, if he is unable to call out to God in repentant faith, if he doesn't even have the ability to turn and trust in Christ? How can you say that he's really free? Well, a man's free if he's able to chase after that which he most strongly desires. That's exactly what scripture says. Your will is to do the will of your father. You're a slave to Satan and a willing slave. You're a slave to Satan because you shout amen to all of his plans. The desires of the body and the mind. But it's interesting here. That word desire. In Greek it's actually thelema. That's the same word that we find in Ephesians 1.11. Where we read that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. His thelema. His desires. That God is working all things according to the counsel of his good will. While you in your deadness and in your sin and in your depravity, we're working all the things that were within your control according to the desires of your will. And they were twisted. And they were demented. And they were in opposition to God. Not just your body, but your mind. That's where the picture of the zombie falls short. Zombies are kind of mindless, right? They're just kind of groaning and droning and going along. And that's what many men find offensive about what we believe in this church because they think that what we believe is that men are automatons or that they're puppets of some sort. If I'm not free the way that the world tells me I'm free, I say to you, no. You're free in the sense that you chase after what your mind tells you to delight in. But what you delight in, apart from Christ, will always be sin. It will never be him because you were dead. It was your will to chase after these things. And the reality is you'll fight to stay there. You've seen this. Many of you knew this in your own life. You fought with everything within you. You did not want to believe that you were dead. You did not want to believe that you were enslaved. But until you understand this, again, I tell you, you will never understand what the problem is. The reality is that today God could wipe out the devil once and for all with but a word, cast Satan and his demons into the pits of hell, never to be seen again. That today, Christ Jesus could return and completely remake this world into a new heavens and a new earth. And unless you are changed in your mind and your flesh and your will and your desires, you'd still be trapped in hell. You, you were the problem. So we start to see all that had to be overcome here. This is all that Christ had to overcome. Not just the works of the devil. Not just the fallenness of the world, but your mind, your will, your desires, your love with slavery. Are you beginning to see what this but God means now? He didn't just do a work out there. He transformed you. He called you to life and gave you a new will and new desires. Completely transforming all that was within you. 
Beloved, this is the picture of Ephesians 2. This is the thing that drives our worship. I love the movie Schindler's List. I recommend you watch it if you've not watched it. I recommend a lot of books. I'm going to give you a movie for now. You're welcome. You know that scene in Schindler's List when Oscar Schindler is, he's being escorted away very swiftly. And you remember how all the people come to him, all those whom he has saved. And he's just surrounded by all these men, all these women, all these children. And you hear stories about people that, have, that were saved by him that would go to his go to his grave and they put rocks upon it. It's one of the scenes at the end of the movie as well. Put rocks upon his grave as a show of respect and honor and dignity. Beloved, how much more ought we to worship the God of the universe that not only saved us from this ensnarement and slavery to the devil, not only set us free from the pattern of this world, but set us free from our own hatred towards him. Set us free from a body and a mind and a will that could not see anything beautiful or lovely in him. How much more ought we to worship this God? Father God, we love you and we thank you. God, I thank you personally that you allowed my voice to hold out until this very moment. It's a gift from you and I thank you. But infinitely more than that, Father, I thank you for the but gods in Scripture. I thank you that while we were still enemies, yet sinners, you not only sent your son to die for us, but you sent your spirit to set us free. And that because we are free, we are now free indeed, never again to be ensnared, never again to be enslaved, that once and for all, we are truly free. So we ask you, Father, to help us walk as free people with joy and thanksgiving, gratitude, and a spirit of worship in all that we do. So we ask now, Father, as we raise our voices as one, that you would receive this praise, that you would be glorified to the highest degree possible. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.